So how about war, huh? How about war? I'm on the fence. Good idea, bad idea, I don't know. Who are we to say? I like war movies. War movies, yeah, that's, I guess. Yeah, that's weird. See, I don't like, you know, heist movies, but I'm, I'm pro, like, robberies in real life. <laughs> yeah. Chris has the, war, the horrors of war going on in his house. Yeah, you can hear it? Yeah. Yeah, they should be going to sleep soon, but... <laughs> no problem. We always have barking dogs. We've had shrieking cats. Uh, we had a guest with, like, pet ferrets one time that were screaming in the background. <laughs> well, that's what it sounded like. We've had motorcycles and... I think this is all just stuff that was in the background for me, actually. This is literally all stuff that <laughs> is my fault. It's oh Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's, always, there you go. it's always Seth's house. Yeah. And that was one... That was just one episode, too. All those noises. Yeah, we'll add some shelling and gunfire sound effects <laughs> in the perfect. background anyway, just to... That's perfect. ...create the mood, yeah. The jungle of war has animals, right? The jungle, right? Screeching, uh-huh. howling. Yeah, and children. That's Yeah, this is all about... All about children. It's perfect. Children screaming. Yeah, there you go. Hey everyone, Tony from Unwatchables here with a quick bit of housekeeping. As you're listening to our Horrors of War episode, you may notice the sound of distant explosions in the background as shells crash down on the enemy front, and you may assume that this is just another example of our signature commitment to immersing you in the dark subject matter of this week's Unwatchable films. And as much as we'd like to take credit for that, the sounds you're hearing are actually just all of our neighbors setting off fireworks because we scheduled this recording over 4th of July weekend. So we apologize for the distraction, and we hope that next time you think of lighting up an unsanctioned firework, you'll stop and think not just of the elderly neighbor lying awake all night or the nervous dog whimpering in the corner, but of the humble podcaster working tirelessly to bring you the unlistenable content that you crave. And we promise that next year we'll take the weekend off and just go to a cookout or something. So thanks for understanding, and as always, thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, your first stop to find out exactly what a film's about to put you through before it's too late. I am Mark Dottavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today we're discussing two films about the Nazi occupation of Europe in World War II as witnessed through the eyes of an orphan child. Those films are 1985's harrowing Soviet classic Come and See and the controversial 2019 adaptation of Jerzy Kaczynski's endurance test, The Painted Bird. Tweet, 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 tweet. Oh, All right. Oh. I would, that's the painted bird there that's in the background. That sounds suspiciously like Seth. Stop painting me. <laughs> <laughs> the other birds will eat me. Yeah, that is too bad. This is the painted Seth. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get there. We're getting ahead of we're getting ahead of things. So uh, I want to start out by introducing our very special guest today, which is Chris, who uh, you may know if you're on Letterbox as Ziglet Murr. That's Ziglet underscore M I R. Chris, so nice to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, this will be exciting. I hope so. We've you know both. I don't know. We've been letterbox friends for a while uh i remember we like wrote about the same movie once twins i did like little collab yes we did we did a small one yes those remains of the day it was remains of the day that's right yeah another uh well very different view of world war ii yes but we're kind of back to the topic now it's appropriate it's appropriate yeah we invited you on for a real fun episode because i these these movies are a real barrel of laughs had you seen these before so i've only seen uh come and see and i saw it 
must have been about a dozen years ago. I was 17 or 18 at the time. And I remember it being very effective um, for my movie going experience. Um, it stuck with me for a while. It definitely met all the praise um, and all that jazz. So I, I, it was a really good movie. I liked it the first time around. So it was going to be a very interesting experience seeing it again for the second time. All right. And then the, it was your first time with the painted bird. First time with the painted bird. That's correct. All right. Well, that was exactly my experience. I'd seen Come and See uh, a while ago and mm-hmm. then got a chance to revisit it for this. Everybody saw Come and See. They came and saw it already. I'd never seen it. Came and saw. It was your first time, Seth. I had heard about it. I had seen the poster. I always thought it was like a science fiction movie because the poster looks all nuts. Yeah, it looks like Stalker or something. Yeah, it looks CGI. I don't know what's going on in that poster. The Russians tend to do that. It's very misleading. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. For sure. And this is the kind of our World War II episode, although there's still plenty of movies left to be about that. There's a ton. Uh, yeah, clearly. And and unwatchable movies, too, or very you know harrowing, difficult ones. Uh, but the similarities between these two, at least superficially, though, I think are pretty striking. Yeah. Uh, since we do have a, a single male, you know, child character who is going through the horrors of war alone. And... Yep. I think Come and See is something that came up in a lot of discussions about The Painted Bird when that was first released uh, in 2019. So I would like for us to start with Come and See, which came out in 1985. Uh, This is a Soviet film, and it was based on a book from 1978 called I Am From the Fiery Village, uh, which is co-written by the co-screenwriter of the film, um, and it's not a novel. I didn't read it, but I read about it. It's basically a collection of interviews uh, with survivors of the Nazi occupation of Belarus. And in particular, uh, it discusses the, I'm not totally sure how to say it, Katyn, Katyn massacre, um, which was something I read about in preparation for this and is something that we see pretty much happen in Come and See. It was an incident during the war in March 1943, where this basically Nazi-appointed battalion in retaliation for some German soldiers being killed, killed almost an entire village of people in Belarusia. I believe there was only eight survivors in the entire village of 157 people. They were all driven into a shed and it was burned down with them inside. At least like 75 of them were children. And really in, in Belarus in general, it's not something that gets talked a lot about as far as, you know, what they went through during the war, but they were one of the hardest hit countries. Well over 2 million people were killed there, which was almost a third of the entire pre-war population. Oh, God. Light stuff, light stuff here. Yeah, and the film is as light as that sounds, uh, which is not at all. So, But that was kind of the idea behind this, I guess, is to give an idea of what this particular experience was like, and that is where this movie takes place. Uh, They speak Belarusian, and yeah, that was the goal of the director, Elam Klimov, uh, who's a guy who grew up in Stalingrad at the time it was invaded by the Axis, uh, what I believe is known as the deadliest battle in the entire war. So he was bringing some of his own perspective to that, but... You know, as a filmmaker, I was looking at his filmography and it's, I didn't really know anything else from it. There were like comedies, family films. Uh, There's a a biopic of Rasputin. I don't believe I know anything from his uh, filmography actually either. Yeah, he's pretty much only known for this and this turned out to be his last film. 
he, I mean, he lived for decades afterwards and uh, just never made another film again after this. Yeah. Killer Mike drop, smashing the mic on the ground and setting it on fire. Boy. Yeah. This is, uh, I'll, I'll just cut to the chase. I, I think this movie's really something. It is really a beautiful movie and horrible and terrifying. It's interesting that you use the word beautiful, though, um, because I think one of the objective, like, good things about Come and See is the imagery in the film, right? So, um, I mean, for me personally, I, I, I get lost in the moments where you have all of the napalm, right, coming down, mm-hmm. raining, on the fi- raining on across the fields late, later in the film, um, the moment with the crane, where they come across the crane actually a few times, or, or if we can just call it the bird, but I'm pretty sure technically it's called the crane. And then um, there's also the moment where um, I believe after they have the the militia party speech, the boy gets lost in the woods again and he steps on a nest of eggs. All of those small moments, they're, they're small moments, but I think the way that, that Klimov captures all of those are beautiful, as Seth puts it. Yeah, there's the uh, key word is moment, I think, with this movie. It zeroes in because of how it lingers on these moments and stays and like makes us see like the whole thing, the whole aspect. I'm glad we're doing both of these movies. I think they are like, in my opinion, one, this one is how you do how you do this better. Uh, and the painted bird I found like frustrating in those aspects of moments. And uh, I know we said we don't compare them. Uh, Spoiler in early in the podcast. I'm comparing them already. I'm going to I'm just going to be comparing them a lot because I think that was what stuck out to me. Perhaps we're seeing the beauty or the hints of beauty throughout all of this horrendous stuff because it's coming from the perspective of a boy who doesn't know any better, who hasn't seen very much in his short life. Right. Um, And then all of a sudden, wham, he's just he's put into the thick of it. And just in case anybody is you know, listening who hasn't seen the film, just very broadly, this follows a boy who is in Belarus and joining the uh, partisans to fight against the Nazi occupation. So at the beginning of the film, he leaves home in his little village, leaves his mother and little sisters, joins this group of partisans out in the woods. And that's really all that you need to know. You know, they eventually get attacked. He eventually goes through kind of a journey and ends up at the the village where we see this massacre happen. So that's just the broad overview of it. But I love that you guys are starting with this because it is very much about the perspective of this one character. And we see a big change in him from the beginning to the end, uh, which is very visceral as far as his performance goes. And I do want to talk about the star of this movie in particular. But even before that, I do want to jump off of what you guys were saying about the style of it. And I think that is definitely what distinguishes this movie because I tend to have a lot of trouble with movies that are very single-minded about just piling on the suffering, the brutality, as if there's some, going to be something profound that we get out of it just through the sheer relentlessness. And this movie, I think, it is a it is a tough sit. It is very intense that it kind of sustains that intensity for most of the whole movie on some level or another. But it kind of, on one hand, gives us these surreal, almost dreamlike um, interludes and imagery throughout that at the, at the same time, they counterbalance with this kind of hyper-realism. And that tension actually reminded me kind of uh, Werner Herzog films, 
which tend to be very ground level documentary like almost. And then this way with some suddenly this absurd tableau or things that happen. And there's so many examples of this movie. One of the earlier ones is when the the little boy joins the partisans in the forest and they're all posing for a picture. And it's this extended tableau of them all like posing for this picture. And it's very drawn out. And there's this kind of almost whimsical edge to it. But at the same time, it's very ominous. And that stuff goes a long way for me for modulating the tone of this movie and getting something more out of it than just, you know, gee, isn't war so horrible? But the boy, in the beginning, it should be said, too, that his mentality of war is either non-existent or he's all rah-rah, let's go, hey, I want to get a gun, you know, sign me up, you know, let's do this thing. Like, he was very ambitious, he's eager, he wants to do these things, and he looks up to the men the other men of his village or the ones that he's seen go off to war. And then all of a sudden that changes as, as we see in the film. Um, and he progresses through all of these horrors one after the other. And obviously once someone has seen all those things, you know, your, your mind's going to be changed. Sure. Yeah. And there's lulls in between. He, he meets a girl They he has these, these little experiences. There's lots of wandering through eerie fog drenched fields. And again, this is, is still, you know, not a, a pleasant film, but the more that it, it really goes for that, those expressionistic touches, and even when it kind of just resembles like a horror movie, I think it's it's very effective. It's not just wallowing in the despair. It's really going for something visceral. Yeah, I, I appreciate that it zeroes in on a very specific setting, not only just a specific character, but a specific general area of a global conflict, right? which I feel like we're so used to that in World War II movies or World War I movies. We are getting this, like, bird's-eye view, like, ensemble, like, where you just get kind of lost in the, just the, the, the sheer, like, overwhelming nature of it, where it is amazing to actually zero in on one event. Uh, this reminded me of, like, Slaughterhouse-Five, how, like, that is specifically, like, zeroing in on the bombing of Dresden, and all that, that we don't often get just, like, very specific, like, moments in, in, a, in a war conflict. Um, it becomes so much more about the, the historical sweeping narrative of it, where this is, like, pretty much takes place in... It, it, a lot of it has to do with the boy's village. He leaves the village for a time. He returns to the village, and they are refugees. Yeah, this is not educational, or you're not going to really learn specific things, you know, about the conflict in this. It's experiential. It's about, or experiential. It's about um, taking this journey, and I think that it does work as a, a film that is. I don't know if I wouldn't go as far as to call it surrealism, but there's definitely vibes throughout that that verge on that. That's ethereal and a little absurd feeling in points, uh, which I'm sure it would feel that way. Which I think we're like, yeah, you're like talking around my favorite part of the movie, I think, which is Mm -hmm. like when he meets the girl in the camp with the soldiers, there's this girl who's a nurse but it also seems like maybe she's there for other reasons. Like maybe some of the soldiers are like flirting with her, trying to get with her. Maybe they are getting with her. I don't know. It's unclear. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Exactly. Once their regiment is attacked and everything, it is pretty much just the boy and the girl together alone in the woods for a long stretch of the movie. And 
that's really yeah that's really where there is like such a wonderful surreal like there's something lost there eventually that's super tragic that it feels like you get a glimpse into the boy and how he could be happy and a glimpse into the girl how like they're having like despite being like lost in the woods and having like a terrifying time they are like kind of they, they there's like levity there's dancing they dance together to pass the time and all of this kind of stuff they snuggle under the tree branches and things like that i mean they're acting like preteen or teenagers right i mean that's that's what they're supposed to be doing right if they weren't just thrown into the throes of war right um but that's that's exactly what i was saying before with the crane like the moment that you're talking about when they're in the woods um Man, man, I just I love the moment with the crane. Like, um, I had to read into it a little bit. I had to look up some symbolism stuff. But in Eastern Europe, some Eastern European nations, the crane is seen as an omen of not good things to come. So you have these beautiful moments with the with the crane and the boy. You know, he just gets the earth from underneath him ravaged. Trees get taken down. Bombs are coming all over the place. And then all of a sudden, it goes quiet. He's got the ringing in his ears, and he sees the crane pop out. For me, it's it's got to be a highlight of the, of the whole movie. And that's what's stolen from us, like, in the latter half of the movie. Once the bombs drop and their little, like, borderline Eden sort of fantasy in the woods is destroyed by these bombs being dropped on them, the, the rest of the movie goes to hell, basically. And I think it's worth saying that it's not like this is a love story between these two characters or even a romance or anything. They're... They really just seem like kids who are kind of stuck and they have some kind of weird interactions. Like when they first meet, she's sobbing for some reason. And then he comes up sobbing almost in like a way that's making fun of her and starts laughing and she starts laughing and they're just laughing and laughing at each other. It has this weird like, yeah, it kind of goes along with that uncanny image of her dancing, you know, in the forest, in the rain. And there's this like ghostly old time music playing in the background with this kind of rumbling going on underneath. Moments like that are almost Lynchian to me as far as the like kind of <laughs> uncanniness of it, where you can't quite put your finger exactly on what is so strange about it. But yeah, once once those bombs fall, which is a great sequence again with the way the sound drops out, and this is where we really start to see a change in the boy. And that's when they go back to the village that he left from. And that's another really effective sequence, I think, and maybe start another like kind of plunge into what the rest of the movie is going to be like. I really loved how they handled, you know, first he goes into his house and you just hear these buzzing of flies, but you don't like really see what they're on. You see there's that this there's children's toys laid out on the floor, but everyone's gone. And the intensity starts to kind of, ratchet up and him and the girl start walking like further and further away from the house and she just like glances behind her to reveal this pile of bodies behind the house and the kind of offhand way that they see that just as they're like leaving the house and he is still holding out hope that he can take her somewhere where they're going to find his family and that they're not in the the pile of dead bodies. Yeah, he's in this like crazy shell shock denial kind of thing. Totally shell shock. Yeah, he's yeah, he's just like, and yeah, they like jump into a swamp and he's like swimming in this horrible swamp. There's like a, it's like a full, like, I don't know. They, they, they go with them into this muck, like up to their neck. It's an obvious metaphor. It's some more symbolism, right? I mean, he just, he just kept throwing the symbolism in there. Klimov or whoever wrote the book. 
I should say. Yeah, I did find that to be like hypnotic because it goes on so long and they, there's these strings and this this ominous hum going on under the soundtrack. It can almost get like maddening that it's really putting you there. You feel like you're wanting things to go forward, the movie to proceed, and you're just trudging like through the mud <laughs> with him. It's interesting because it's, it's like Klimov is focusing on how the boy and the girl are reacting to everything, right? So it's not so much the bombs are going off. It's not so much that they're seeing all these different things. I think the parts where they're kind of muddling around, it's we're seeing how these two are are handling themselves amid all that's going on. And there's so much with eyes, both their eyes. Lots of close-ups with the camera, right? It's right in their face. Oh, yeah. An emphasis on these blue, like, crazy eyes that they have that become more and more emphasized as the more shit that they see that they come and see uh flows into their eyeballs it seems to just like infect them you know one device that's used very heavily throughout this whole movie that's very striking we haven't even mentioned yet is how the characters will look directly into the camera constantly and not you know a lot of films tend to like end with a character looking into the camera or it'll be something that happens once or twice. And this happens all throughout the, the movie from the opening scene where the boy and another little boy are running around in the, uh, like trying to dig up left behind weapons on a beach. And right away we have uh, them staring like directly into the camera. The one kid's pretending to like be a German and uh, it's all very eerie. And that happens throughout the the whole film. And I'm not sure I've seen another movie where there's people looking right into the camera that often, which gives this really strange, it has this weird effect of being, it it establishes a kind of intimacy, but it's also uncomfortable because, you know, it's like they're looking at you and the way that it's not limited to one character, it just keeps happening is just another thing that I think distinguishes this movie. Uh, And I I think we've been kind of loosely talking about different influences sort of uh, on this movie and, I think it's hard not to say that Klimov would have been inspired by um, Tarkovsky in some ways, especially since we keep going back to the imagery, right? So like Tarkovsky, I mean, Tarkovsky is a totally different level. I mean, I mean, Klimov does a good job here, um, you know, and there's still credit due to him, but Tarkovsky influenced so many people with how he could capture nature in particular. And I think Klimov tries to tap, you know, channel into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy really... He's he's reaching somewhere real lofty where like I can only really compare him to like yeah sort of this like gritty bombast of like a Herzog but with like a yeah visual vocabulary uh, Kubrick uh, yeah now I I definitely want to talk about the star of this movie who plays this little boy he has a name a Fleora I believe um, it's easier to just say the boy. And uh, his name, the actor's name is Alexei Kravchenko, and he was a non-professional actor that the director wanted to intentionally choose. And he was between 14 and 16 while they were making this. I think he might have have changed ages throughout it, and he did never act before. Low-key child abuse, okay. Yeah, right? And uh, he did, after this movie, he wasn't in a single other thing for like 15 years. And then in 2000, he started being in films again. And whether you want to consider it a great performance or not, because it just seems so real, is his face, I think, is iconic in this. It's on, you know, it's on the poster. And 
Yeah, he starts out, of course, with this just, you know, boyish enthusiasm about everything. And he's goofy. And the transformation is to the point where he literally looks like an old man who is totally shell-shocked. And it reminded me of Rene Falconetti in The Passion of Joan of Arc, if anybody has seen that, which is this one of the most affecting visual performances in, in terms of facial expressions in the history of cinema, as far as I'm concerned. And especially when they like cut his hair, he resembles her so much. We just recorded an episode where we were talking about the horror movie Martyrs. And there's a, a part where this, this lady is tortured for like the whole last half hour of the movie. And one of the people from this cult runs in and says, the expression on her face, it's like she's, you know, she's transcended. You will never believe this look on her face. And you know, then we see it and it's just someone going, uh, like, but if they had this kid's face, this is this, that would totally work. I do agree with you in, in certain extents there for sure. I mean, he's iconic. He's got, he's got some, he's got hell of a facial expression. So in my second watch, I think that's where my largest critique comes from only because in between all the imagery and all the beauty that we're seeing, all the horrific imagery, I kind of found his, I kind of found the acting from him to be more cartoonish in certain ways. Do you think that that, because, um, you know, one, one could argue maybe that the, the way that the, the movie is, is shot and kind of pushes things into almost an exaggerated territory, do you think they, like that would have still worked better for you if the performance wasn't reflecting that? It's, it's interesting because I don't, think it's, I don't think you're wrong to say that there's a lot of, there's elements of hyper-realism in here. You know, because I, I do believe that people sort of look, I'll say, I'll say my, the word I used before, cartoonish, um, maybe when they're in their worst moments, right? So like, maybe someone's sobbing, or, you know, if they go through a breakup, they don't look pretty, they look pretty ugly, or, you know, they're going through, they're, go, they're going through something, right? So I, that's probably accurate. But, you know, it's just something that caught me off guard this time around. He's also... Clearly having a very particular, the character is clearly having a very particular reaction. He is borderline, like, it look, it feels like he's lost his mind or something. There's, like, three words at a time that can escape that boy's mouth. Like, it, like his, like, mouth is, like, crusted over. It's almost like it's being, like, sewn shut or something, it feels like. And you can, he doesn't move his mouth anymore after a certain point. There's just certain times where he like says like a few things and that's it. We barely get any verbiage from him like the last like hour like plus of the movie. That could speak to how we're supposed to see a, se- a severe difference in how he was so ambitious in the beginning to how he became such a shell of himself by the end. And I do love that about his arc. I think that is kind of a cliche in these like war movies about like Oh, they were so naive back then. They wanted to like go out and be heroes and then they found out that it was, you know, oh, it's a very serious business war. But like this accentuates something maybe a little deeper at the beginning which he's not specifically like looking for like I want to be a war hero. This is going to be cool. That's in there. But at the same time, he has the same kind of problem that I think like I don't know, like young kids maybe specifically young men have where they are like despondent like don't really care emotionally vacant because he's like ready to leave his mom and his mom is like 
like telling him like if you leave like your my your your uh sisters are going to be in a really tight spot we might die you might as well she hands him an axe at, at a certain point and tells him to kill his sisters because you're killing them by leaving and he's just like he doesn't care or he doesn't get how that or how that's like how his sisters are going to die because he leaves like he doesn't just he doesn't get it he doesn't get responsibility and that's like one of the big arcs of this that i think he'd like in a really like harsh horrible way he like finds out very quickly that he does really care about human life and it is affecting it, it is effective and you like it's it is a horrible thing to see a life lost or be responsible for something because yeah at a certain point he also whether it's true or not he believes that a lot of this is his fault because he found the gun at the beginning the old man at the beginning who sees them like finding trying to look for guns so they can join the army he tells them don't do that the germans will see you and they'll think that you're like trying to pick a fight with the germans and the germans will come down on us and they do see him through a plane and later on they find that same old man and he's his whole body is charred which is kind of, you know a pretty gross scene and he comes out and says that this is because of you guys, which, you know, may or may not be true, but... He says you shouldn't be glad that you found the weapon. Yet finding the weapon is what changed the circumstances for Floor to actually get away from the village before everybody got killed. So there's a little bit of an irony there. Like, he's going on, like, saying, oh, like, you shouldn't have found the weapon, but the weapon actually sort of saved his life because he ended up leaving the village before it got totally raised to the ground. Basically, survivor's guilt with a mouth. Yeah, in this sort of like, cool, you survived, buddy, but no one else did. Yeah, that all makes sense. And Seth, I'm really glad you brought up that scene with his mom and sisters because I, I forgot to point that out because that's one of the few moments of like real levity here. I love the moment where his his mom is shoves this hatchet in his hand. Says, just go ahead. <laughs> she, she pulls the girls out of bed and she's like, go ahead, just kill him now, kill him now. And he kind he kind of like winks at the girls and makes a little gesture yes. like he's going to do it, and they're giggling, and that's just so humanizing and like charming at that point. It's charming, but it's also like the mom means it. That's what's so hard. Well, yeah, the mom's freaking out, but the way the kids are all giggling about it, I think, is cute. <laughs> yes, charming and charming and morbid all at all at once. Yeah. And especially, I mean, you really want to grasp onto a moment like that when everything else is so grim here. So let's and let's talk then about, I guess, what's the big, you know, centerpiece of the film, which is when he does end up in this village uh, that as the battalion is arriving and rounding everybody up. And this is our I think our closest encounter with, you know, the enemy, with the Germans, where they, they show up and they're in total control and everybody is helpless they're carting this body around that has a that's like holding a sign that says I insulted a German soldier this morning. And you get the full the full, you know, scope of of how this this is working. And they they do exactly what happened in real life. You know, it's a long sequence. They round up everybody and put them into this shed. And I have I, you know, I definitely want to get everybody's impressions just about this sequence and how it works you know, in the context of the movie as kind of the the climax. Um, it's definitely tough to watch. And I will point out one particularly deter- disturbing detail when they do have this shed just, I mean, jammed full with over 100 people. And one of the soldiers leans in and says, you, you leave the kids behind and you're free to go. So if you leave your kids in there, we'll let you come out, which is just a particularly sadistic 
and apparently real life detail. They're not actually going to let them go, which we do find out, right? Because they may let them leave. Anybody that does leave just gets mowed down afterward. And then they end up just killing everybody inside anyway. So it's kind of like, it, like you said, it's sadistic. It's, it, but it's a real life. Like it's something that actually happened when they, when they forced these people into these buildings or chambers, whatever you want. And really just the fact that our protagonist ends up in the building and then getting out and surviving is maybe the most implausible, you know, d- development in the movie. It is very dreamlike. He just wanders out, whereas there's a few others that try and wander out and they get shot. But he just wanders out and they just let him go. Yeah, and but somehow they, it, you know, he, he sticks around and there's a disturbing thing later where the these soldiers grab him and like pose for a camera holding a gun to his head. And after they take the picture, they just walk away and leave him. Which, that is what's really on display here. Not just the, like, oh, this is war and we need to, like, destroy the other, you know, and all that. And it's very serious. Like, it's just, like, the drunken party nature of the whole thing is really, like, expressed here. That this is a party for the Germans. They are all getting drunk. Uh, and they are just gathered around and throwing things at this b- burning barn full of human beings. But because they have this mindset that these are not the proper human beings to walk this earth, therefore we can just kill them and it doesn't matter. Or I don't know. It's hard to I mean, people will be trying to characterize, you know, the Nazi mindset f- till we all perish. Uh, we will never get to the full bottom of it but uh yeah it's really is on display here that like horrible and plausible yet very plausible lengths that people can get to when it comes to cruelty and enjoying cruelty i do want to i know ask maybe about what you know is there a value really in doing these kind of recreations like meticulous recreations of something horrible uh like this and you could you could apply that to a lot of different things to movies that are about you know massacres or shootings that re- or movies about nine eleven that really go in a long way towards chiefly recreating something. And I know that a lot of come and see has a lot of uh, expressionistic imagery and things that get under your skin. But this particular sequence, a lot of it seems to be like we want you to witness every detail of something that actually happened and. You know, there's kind of two ways to look at that as far as whether that's not necessarily exploitative, although you could argue that, but also just that it's just putting you through something and recreating it isn't necessarily illuminating it or, you know, there is an element almost of disrespect. You know, there's not movies generally don't show you like the inside of a gas chamber or something in the Holocaust that. Or the way that this, I was thankful we never return inside the shed once the fire starts. So we don't see, you know, the smoking bodies and things. But yeah, where do you guys land with stuff like that? And this in particular? Well, this in particular, I feel like I do think that it earns itself at the end because it zeroes in, because it it it, it is very humanizing. It's very interested in the human aspect. And it's, I don't know, there's some real belief that humanity is worth saving, that there is uh, some good in this kid, there's some good in humanity here, and that's what 
the purpose of bringing the dark stuff in to contrast it, to remind us what we should value and what we should fucking eradicate at all costs as far as, like, evil human nature is concerned, like, uh, for the sake of innocence and this for, for the sake of goodness. So I think this one does earn its big moment with the village. I do think, I, I don't know how I can really, like, critique the village sequence necessarily, I think it goes. I could say that it goes on too long. I could say that it's too gratuitous and it is like effect. It's like just too much. At the same time, I don't know like what I would really take away. Yes. Yeah, so I think, especially in regards to World War II, I think a lot of that is you know because Klimov lived through it, right? Um, I think a lot of that is because those people don't want people in the future to forget what had happened. Um, and I think that's a lot of the big takeaways with World War II, especially with the Holocaust. Not, not that anyone's making conspiracy theories, but as humans, we forget things. And I think, I think forgetting is, is a dangerous thing, but it's also something that we don't do on purpose, you know? Um, but I think that goes to what you're saying, like seeing all this intense stuff. That's really the only reason I can think of. It's so people don't forget. That's about the only good thing I can I can think of as far as defending it. Personally, I I I like I like Come and See. I like the film. I don't rate it as highly as I used to anymore, um, only because I, I I found some issues with the leading actor and I think the tone is a little shifty in spots. But on the contrary, beautiful imagery, some beautiful sequences, and I think it matters what you may what you might be comparing it to as far as other World War II films, if that's something that's going on in your head, right? So I think it could that could be different for everybody. Yeah, and in general for this movie, if if there is anything to temper my enthusiasm, it is that it's not, I don't feel like it's totally free of, of making me wonder about the value of it and of kind of really hammering, you know, one note of incredible horror into the ground. And uh, we've talked about the things that I think help modulate that throughout the film. But especially, you know, the second half is is so just going going through this this torment that uh, I still think maybe there there is a little bit of a, a narrowness to it where it's it can be easy to show you terrible things and, and get you to agree that they're terrible. So there is a line about how much prodding you really need and how insightful something is being just by recreating it for you and actually my reservations continue into everything that happens after the village scene which i want to talk about um because there is there is kind of a stylistic like rupture that happens at the end of this movie that's kind of unexpected uh before we get to that though they do the partisans do arrive afterwards and round up kind of like a small group of nazis who are left from this group and you know, we have one, a couple of them who are begging for their lives and saying, no, Hitler made us do, us, do this. The SS gave us the command. I, I'm an old man. And you can tell that they're being disingenuous about it and just trying to save their asses. And yet there's another guy there who admits like, yeah, I'm the one who told them that they can leave if they leave the kids behind and you guys don't deserve to live. And it goes as far as one of them who's begging for his life that he he's like, give me gas, give me gas. And he starts dousing his comrades in gas like he's going to light them on fire. Uh, and it ends with all of them just being shot anyways by the group. That's a powerful scene. I, I, I am 
yeah, that was that was a really effective scene because I was yeah I was getting to the point where I was like okay like where's there to go from here? <laughs> I am like way too zoomed out and like just kind of numb at this point. But that was like it was just like a I don't know is it it was a, it was a head trip that I hadn't really experienced necessarily like that. I liked that scene and moment more I, or at least i thought it was more effective than the uh final moments where the boy is with the has the gun and he uh shoots the portrait of hitler um and then we get brought into all these fast edited fast edited sequence of everything you know shots of the war etc yeah real life footage suddenly we're seeing real life footage yes um i actually thought what you guys were just talking about was more effective than that I could agree. Not that it was bad, but it, it, I think it almost throws off the flow of what we had just seen previous, you know, like it doesn't quite fit maybe to what we, you know, all the muddling around in, in nature, seeing bombs go off. And then, you know, we're seeing all these people in the shed getting herded together and killed. Then we see these Germans get what's coming to them. And then all of a sudden we're in like documentary territory. That scene is difficult. I'm not totally sure how I feel about it. Because, yeah, it is. The boy finds a picture of Adolf Hitler in a puddle. And he starts just shooting at it. And we are seeing basically in reverse. And the film is reversing a bunch of footage of Hitler and his rise to power. Like every shot is reversing Hitler further and further away. And he's destroying Hitler like through time all the way to the point where Hitler is a baby, and then he's unable to kill baby Hitler, basically. Uh, which I said it wasn't science fiction, but it, uh, you know, it almost is for a second. My problem with it is this like contradiction that I'm trying to sort through, which is like that it both like loses the boy in the narrative and loses the narrative focus because it simplifies everything and boils it down to Hitler now. Which my favorite part about this movie is that it's like. It's so removed from the greater conflict and like all these like sweeping narratives that we know about in the history books. And it's no, it's more about the individual in a in a village, a specific village that is attacked like it, like like your village would be attacked during this time. It seems like a really strange place to end in a movie like this, because everything up to this point is so much about the experience. And like Seth said, not about the greater historical context. And this seems to suddenly be bringing up these themes that haven't been addressed at all in the movie before, that now all of a sudden this is about, you know, morality or a vengeance or about, you know, specifically about the individual of Adolf Hitler, where we're mainly getting a bunch of faceless combatants, which is how, you know, the war would have actually really been fought at this point. So it does seem out of place to me. I'm pretty ambivalent about that, even though it does seem like a very bold move to suddenly see all of this like backwards running footage uh, of things. But as it went on and especially, you know, ending on seeing Hitler's mother and baby Hitler and everything, it, it seems to be narrowing everything down to some kind of point that the movie isn't ready to really address. And it is kind of simplistic. Also, it's like you really think that if just if Hitler had died as a young person that we wouldn't have somehow found our way to this nationalistic fervor that was taking over the country at the time and all these atrocities that happened. It's not as easy as just killing Hitler. Well, that's, that's exactly, I agree with you. And I think, 
And I think the key point is trying to make the comparison of our main character to what Hitler once was. Sure. His innocence that was lost just like his was. Exactly. Something along those lines, I think, is the point. It it does, like, we call it simplistic, a simplistic gesture. But it is, this movie is supposed to be from a boy's perspective, a young boy's perspective, which is simplistic and and would be like as a little kid me thinking about world war ii i wouldn't have some sort of like now it's not just as simple as like one man caused everything which is true i know that now but like from a little boy's perspective he would just see it zeroed in on what he's been told which is like hitler there is this one guy and he caused all of this and if only I could just stop him from ever existing, none of this would happen. So it is this grand imaginary like gesture that only a little kid could be naive enough to make, which does work for me. And I kind of felt in the the like final shots after that at the end of the movie to be a, a little bit kind of like it was searching for the right ending without really having much of a place to go after, you know, everything's been accomplished. We've come and seen and gone witnessed what happens in this village. And, uh, you know, there's just kind of this long shot following the partisans in the woods and the boy kind of catches up with them. The camera loses them for a second in the woods and then finds them again. And there's like Mozart on the soundtrack. It kind of pans up the trees. I don't know, almost like it's trying to find some kind of a satisfying ending or something to leave us with. But nothing really came across very strongly for me with that. If it was trying to make a point or be uplifting or, you know, is this... Is this movie about the futility of war or is it supposed to be something about there is kind of a pro-resistance feel to it because we've seen the horrors that have happened. What are they supposed to do? Not resist it. And so he's going out and joining them again still, which doesn't seem to connect with his little thought experiment about Hitler that just happened. Yeah, I don't know. I almost feel a movie like this, when it, it hits those points so hard, it kind of paints itself into a corner. And that's why I found the stuff after the the massacre to to be kind of the weak points. I thought the steady cam shot was just really cool. It was. <laughs> I, have nothing to say about it. I just yes. thought it was really cool. Yeah. So I can't really knock it. I don't. I don't. I guess I don't really care that it doesn't mean anything. I guess. Which I don't think it means anything. It certainly has a reputation, you know, for being a, a difficult to watch and harrowing film, and is considered a classic. Certainly one of the most significant Soviet films ever made. So yeah, did you guys, you know, like. All, are we all on the I wouldn't unwatch this kind of side or is there part of you that didn't think it was worth it? I wouldn't. Let me make sure I'm saying that right. I wouldn't unwatch it. Yeah, that's correct. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I would. I would totally, totally glad I watched it, especially for a second time, even though even though I said my rating went down a little bit. But that's that's neither here or there. Um, definitely essential viewing. I would agree. Especially as far, yeah, if you are interested in World War II and the study of it and study of human cruelty at all. A very different perspective, for sure, for World War II, being focused on a Belarusian village um, and from a 14-year-old boy's perspective. Yeah, I agree, too. And I think this is almost a good entryway for people who are interested in war films. And this one is, kind, is you know, very much an art film. 
and and the it kind of splits that difference. This isn't really like you know your dad's World War Two movie, but he platoon. <laughs> it's got fucking drone music in it. Exactly, almost. I guess almost in the way that you know Apocalypse Now might be something that introduces people to a new kind of filmmaking and artistic expression in the context of being a movie about the war, about the Holocaust. And then from, you know, the other vantage point, it's something that very much does count as a war film or a Holocaust film that for people who are into art house films primarily can also find to be more interesting than a typical war film. And all of those things apply maybe to different degrees to our next film, which came out in 2019 and uh, is very much maybe a spiritual descendant of Come and See. I think it invites comparisons in certain ways uh, that we will talk about. So yeah, The the Painted Bird is also based on a book, although this is a novel by the Polish author Jerzy Kaczynski that was published in 1965, uh, and which I did read in preparation for this out of curiosity, and I definitely have some thoughts about the book in addition to the film. Good boy. Kudos to you for reading that. <laughs> what yes. a fun page turner. Riveting. My Yeah, my God. Uh, but it is a controversial book for many reasons outside of the content. Uh, be, but Jerzy Kaczynski is interesting guy who also wrote the novel for Being There, the Hal Ashby, Peter Sellers film. I mean, that's, you know, a pretty significant, at least in terms of his films go, the Painted Bird came out before that, and, um, you know, he was a, a Polish guy who grew up during World War II, and the book, The Painted Bird, is essentially, it sounds like a lot of stories that he used to tell people as if they happened to him, like at dinner parties and things, these these brutal anecdotes, and the book just stitches them all together from the first chapter to the last of this little boy it's not expressly autobiographical it reads like a novel and i think he allowed people to think that it was autobiographical but i heard that he made claims i heard that he made a lot of claims and stuck by a lot of his claims to his death made claims and there were as mark had mentioned well sort of vaguely um there was uh, accusations of plagiarism also yes plagiarism of him having ghostwriters of him not even having been fluent in English at the time that he wrote it and that it was translated from his Polish like original text and that throughout his career he had different like assistants and editors who did a lot of the writing either enhancing it for him or doing it outright and you know he's good. he's a slippery character in real life but the book is you know it's just this nameless boy who six, starts out 6 years old and is wandering the countryside, separated from his parents because they've been, they tried to find someone to adopt him during the war to keep him safe. And he just goes from village to village to village. These are all very primitive villages full of huts. And he meets dozens of characters, goes through many, many different villages. And down to a person, the villagers are cruel, sadistic, superstitious, sexually depraved racist, stupid, hypocritical, they're, they're monsters. Almost every single person that he meets, no matter how far out he goes. Yeah, it doesn't matter if they're Russian, German, American, whatever. Every it's single one. Like every single person. Yeah. Is trash and doing and evil it's like, things. 
every chapter is, it's very episodic. Every chapter is just like trying to top the last one almost transparently. There's bestiality, incest, uh, child rape, torture, genital mutilation, eyes scooped out, and endless animal cruelty of all, every animal is in a more creative way brutalized, much more than you see in the movie. And read it, reading it, it really does seem unfilmable and that only like a serial killer would ever think that this should be something that should be made into a movie because there's nothing else there besides these anecdotal atrocities, just one after the other. And it almost started to read comically to me as it goes on. And to think that anyone ever could think that all this stuff happened to one person is it's a tough sell. Just seems preposterous to me. It's yeah. hilarious yeah. In, a, in its own way. Uh, and I, I imagine from what you're saying, I mean, you're describing my movie experience, basically. <laughs> is that, that's They're very this similar. Feels. This feels like uh, very accurate to that, that this is just a endless gallery of horrors that are shown to me for no reason. Uh, little to no reason. Um, and they do feel so over the top and so exaggerated that, like, again, it couldn't be more different from uh, come and see in that way that it is just like go on and on and like oh burning people in a shed who cares that's one of many things that like you know it, it does not give the human dignity to the moments it feels like the moments are just hopped into and hopped out of i i wonder i wanted to know more about the filmmaker's perspective on this if he was going more for that rather than trying to like looking at it not as its intended purpose, which I think was to, like, not only shock, but, like, he thought he was making some kind of, by shocking people, he was making some kind of grand gesture of, like, showing us the, you know, basically doing a ham-fisted job of what Come and See does really well, um, which is showing you cruelty, but with a purpose, right? Which this has no purpose, and it is just shock, Um and I want. I feel like the filmmaker is also just sort of doing that. It's just showing me things that are awful that someone felt the need to write down one time. Yeah, I mean to use a maybe not so good to anecdote. Um, it's kind of like if you ever know someone who's a salesman in real life, and they always try to one up everything that maybe you've experienced in your life. So like when you say that, oh hey, I went swimming in this lake, they say, oh hey, I went swimming in this lake, and it was way bigger than that lake. You know, it's kind of like, that's what it feels like, right? Yeah, we're just trying to upsell you to the next, like, product after you. Okay, I'll buy this. Oh, yeah? Well, would you buy this now? Exactly. Where it's like, oh, I have a I have a ham sandwich for lunch. Oh, well, that's nothing. I have, you know, I got a six-foot whatever sandwich, you know. And they just keep going on. Yeah, I had I had sex with the pig and, uh, and then butchered it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what it feels like, for sure. I had the comparison in my head to a non-World War II film. I have, have you guys seen Satan Tango by Bellatar? Yes. That's another one that's on our list. Okay. So another, <laughs> it's funny. I'm throwing these comparisons out there and these are like 10, yeah. 10 hour long movies. <laughs> um, right. But Satan Tango was what came through my head when I watched The Painted Bird. And The Painted Bird is nowhere near as long as Satan Tango is, but it sure felt that way. 
Um, feels lo- felt longer than the book, frankly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I skimmed a lot. I, I skimmed a lot on this movie. I'll admit that I did not skim on Satan Tango, which is seven hours long. So, yeah, and That's, if that gives you any indication about how this movie feels, I bring it up in particular though because I think I think the slow cinema or what what they call slow cinema, like Bellatar, his his niche, right? Um, I feel like that's appropriate comparison here because I think who's the director of the painted bird. I don't know if I can say his name. Uh, Vac- Vaclav Marhal. Yeah. Okay. So Vaclav is a Czech director. Marhal. Okay. So um, I feel like he's, he's, he's grabbing inspiration from the slow cinema with this, um, or he's trying to, because the, the first chapter scene with Marta, I'm getting vibes of like the Turin horse, another Bellatar movie, um, or like Satan Tango, Satan Tango is split up into chapters, right? from different perspectives of different characters. So it's almost an exact comparison there. And basically those were the two things that were going through my head. Um, of course, Bellatar's movies are also black and white crisp. The cinematography is probably the best part of the painted bird. Um, everything looks gorgeous. Everything looks great. Um, it's just so much how the narrative is put together. And uh, maybe the acting, I a little have a little bit of an issue with too, because um, it's interesting how they chose to have A-list actors in some of these roles where you feel like nobody, like people who are nobodies should be playing these characters. Don't know how you guys felt about that. Yeah, they're hella uh, distracting. Udo Kier coming out of nowhere. It, like Harvey Keitel out of nowhere. Being like really intense scenes that I'm supposed to not be distracted from. It's not supposed to be like, haha, it's Udo Kier like beating his wife to a bloody pulp and pulling out his brother's eyeballs, but or like Barry Pepper is reprising his role as a sniper <laughs> in a war movie. Yeah, dumb. Yeah, it really reads to me like they there's so little going on here, and none of the actors really get much to do. So it's like, well, maybe Udo Kier can bring the gravitas of of just his presence to this nothing role that he doesn't get to do anything. And I think you're totally right that. The only good thing I can say about this is, you know, it is handsomely shot. There's nice, you know, stark black and white cinematography, though even that feels like he really the director really is just stealing every trick he can from slow cinema, from even Tarkovsky type moments that there's there's a real like pretension to this that he's going to somehow wring out the the profundity by presenting it in this particular and familiar way to anybody who's, you know, into these kind of art films and especially the way that it seems like every single scene we're going into these villages and it's just everyone always are just sullen and they stand around in morose silence doing nothing like he's he's going to somehow get this to be profound the more he prolongs the silences and like the book has almost no dialogue, but it tells you what they're saying. You know, it'll say the narrator will be like, well, um, you know, this, this person told me a story of this happening and they explained to me this. So it's almost like, well, the director was adapting the book. He also wrote it and, or wrote the screenplay and there was not actual dialogue. You can just pluck from the book. He would have to invent it from what's described. And so he's like, Eh, that's a little too hard. Why don't I just have everyone be completely silent for the whole movie? And it'll seem more meaningful that way, even though it doesn't make sense. And it drove me, it started to drive me crazy how the, the everyone's just always standing around, like doing nothing and saying nothing. And 
I think that's also why you can have this multinational cast because they never have to talk. So you can have Harvey Keitel there. You can have Barry Pepper and Stellan Skarsgård because who doesn't matter yeah. what <laughs> all they got to do is just show their face. It sort of takes you out of the experience because then you have this, you have this cinematography that's just gorgeous. And uh, maybe some scenes may, might even pull you in, but then like the way that the characters interact just totally throws you right back out. Yeah. I mean, I really love those sort of like non-realistic performances. Like, you know, I, I'm a huge David Lynch fan and I, I love, I love stuff like that that is like a performance just like people don't talk like that. People don't act like that, but they're doing it in this movie. And I, I that is true about Bellatar movies. I think, though, it's just a matter of doing it right and doing it wrong, kind of, and doing it in a boring way as opposed to just like at least a creative, interesting way of like fucking with reality. Where here, it just more reads as like, art house by numbers like you put people you make it and you make them look sullen and serious and you put it in black and white and you get a really good cinematographer and like oh my god if you're gonna make a movie in black and white like you gotta you gotta really sell it to me and make it worth it like make it like i love black and white photography but like it's a gesture it's a big it's a big move and it just feels like so like low-hanging fruit to make this sullen evil dark movie in world about world war ii like black and white and stuff and i think that that hurts a movie like this because it wants you to be it wants to make this point about the evil of humanity and all of us yet everyone is this monstrous caricature so what what does that really tell us i'm split on that on this because i don't know necessarily because i kind of feel like this isn't going for realism necessarily because it if it is this guy is like super naive and just sucking this writer's dick and does not has not even read the wiki page um that this is all lies and shit and obvious lies uh because for me it it's at least interesting this movie is at least interesting on paper the idea of like exploring this guy's lies that are just like morbid visions that he came up with himself that are just like constructed nightmares basically that are fantasy sequences basically that like yeah people don't act like this people are cruel to each other people were cruel in, during world war 2 but this is like some sort of weird, like, gross fan fiction version. That feels valid. I think another part of it, too, is just the way that the chapters are almost, it's not smooth, it's not, it doesn't feel fluid. It's almost like they're pasted and Frankenstein together. That's true. Some of the moments, like, there's a moment where he goes into the, like, very early on in the movie, like, where he goes to the next village and he sees someone, like, looking at him and then they immediately cut to him surrounded by a crowd of villagers being screamed at and like they're threatening to throw him in the river and drown him or something. And like, it's, I thought that was kind of interesting, the sort of like hack job editing thing, but it doesn't really, not much comes of it. And I I think I agree. A lot of that does happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's lots of short choppy scenes that, um, you know, just, just lots of, okay, here's a shot of him. Uh, you know, cleaning shoes. Here's a shot of him laying in bed. Here's a shot of him the next day. Like just kind of giving us all the information that we need and getting to the next point. And the the book really reads that way too, that there's no 
really sense of like a, a thread or a, a forward momentum as they go. Sometimes the narrator will have like a, a kind of revelation or of some kind and it never carries over into the next chapter. Sometimes it doesn't even explain how he got to the next place. It's just like, now he's with the the carpenter who scoops at the guy's eyes. Now he's with a blacksmith uh, yeah. who traps birds and tortures animals. And now he's with this guy in another profession who uh, forces his daughter to have uh, sex with a goat. We'll talk <laughs> about that scene, by the way. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> even on that level, so... I want to talk about some of the little episodes here because it is like a little title card will come up. It'll say Marta or Olga or Hans. And this is the little vignette that goes along with that part, just straight out of the book. But in every case, it since it is an adaptation, it loses that interior monologue. Anything that is like, um, uh, there's a part in this where uh, he, there's a girl he meets who starts having sex with him. And I'll just go straight to this. We're going out of order, but uh, I'm glad you're bringing it up because it's it's the one scene for me that's sort of stuck out from the bunch. Yeah, it's it's and it and it's even worse in the book. But uh, yeah, so he starts having he has sex with this girl like off and on, and then at one point he like sees her having sex with a goat. Uh, I don't know if it's it's supposed to be. I read somewhere that it's almost like she's supposed to be like simulating it to mock him in the movie. I don't know. In the book, he just discovers her and her uh, like father making her have intercourse with this goat. And in the book, he has this this whole uh, thing where he talks about like, oh, all, everything in life really is evil. And the only way to get by is to inflict as much harm as you can in equal proportion to the harm that gets inflicted on you. It's it's not it doesn't work very well in the book, but it is something that's there at least. And all of those moments are gone from this. It's just like the bare action of, okay, now let's just show him, see her fucking a goat. And then in the next scene, he's stringing up the goat and he beats an old man. And I guess he seems angry about it. And then we go on to the next scene. There's no sense of any kind of meaning or psychology or what's really going on underneath there, which is a problem with a lot of adaptations in general. Uh, but especially here, reducing everything just to the level of, showing us all of this stuff ends up making it like as as pointless as it is tedious just adapting <laughs> literally just adapting there it is a picture of it there it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it, it just it just plays like shock value to me yeah any sort of real genuineness it has um sort of gets lost i think when they when they bring in the latter half of that, especially, you know, with the goat. Well, because it just keeps on hammering home that there isn't a greater meaning here. That there, if for, for me, like, this is a barren wasteland of a planet with these husks called humans that are meaningless. And their existence, is it like whether they do bad things to each other or not, is like meaningless. It just, feel, it just all feels so nihilistic that I had a, an incredible, like, hard time watching this. I, I, we've watched some Whoppers, but what really is the most punishing for me anymore is not necessarily content. It is the content not being rewarding in any sense or not having any sort of real worth, um, which, yeah, I, I think, again, Come and See is a great installment for this podcast as far as, like, what we are hoping to get out of 
movies that are controversial or difficult. There is something to be gained by seeing these things. It is good for us to experience and like uh, experience things like the horrors of war to see why humanity is worth like why humanity can go somewhere positive or not positive. You know, here it is just gratuitous and meaningless and it's a meaningless exercise. So go fucking kill yourself or something. It feels like, yeah, it feels the fatalism. It just feels more like fashionable than anything really meaningful here. If anyone's listening to this, who hasn't seen the movie, obviously it doesn't sound like we're recommending it. Uh, but I do want to give a sense of some of the little episodes that happen here. And the title, The Painted Bird, comes from the uh, Lek and Ludmila section, uh, where basically he stays with this guy who captures birds. And one of the things he does, you know, like everything that everyone does in this movie, just for a cruel, sadistic thrill, will take a bird and paint it like bright colors. So when he releases it, it tries to join its flock again and they don't recognize it as itself. And so they peck it to death and, you know, it falls from the sky. And I guess we're supposed to be taking some kind of metaphor, maybe that he, you know, the kid becomes the painted bird or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Prejudice. But all, this racism. Is, what is, it's just such a like easy, lame metaphor, I think. <laughs> it's like it's killing two birds with a stone or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah. Maybe that's really what's going on. Yeah. yeah that makes more sense than anything else. And one in the hand is worth two in the bush. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one painted bird in the hand. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also, in this particular part, there's this this woman. She's like this big, I don't know, feral sex maniac who, like, lives in the fields Who and the village boys have sex with her called named Ludmila. And she's, in the book, refers to her as Stupid Ludmila is her, like, full name. And Jesus, she was cool. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, you know, it's it's just a, another atrocity that happens, basically, where the the bird painter enjoys having sex with her, although we don't get any sense about him having some kind of special relationship with her. Mm-hmm. Like, even we get we at least get that much in the book. And I mean, no, having the, sex with each other in a field is a special relationship. Sure, of course. Well, in that case, she has lots of special relationships. And that's cool. The You know, the village. I thought women, she was cool. The village women gang up on her at some point and beat her to death. Yeah. And just to give you an idea of the kind of things they do in this movie, they shove like a bottle up inside of her and then someone gotta do it. Just gotta do it. Kicks it so it shatters. Um, which is, you know, similar to the Udo Kier character who's jealous of some guy looking at his wife, and so he literally scoops both his eyeballs out with a spoon. We get a shot of a cat like licking the the eyes on the ground afterwards. As we listed out, it just kind of it really just starts to sound like a really bad black comedy, or you know, <laughs> if this had an ounce of humor in it, an ounce. Oh my god, it made I, I, I it made it really jarring to watch. Come and see afterwards that there was like a couple scenes of levity and humor. And it was just like wild. I was like, whoa, there's jokes in this movie. That's wild. There's a joke in this movie. Yeah. And at some points, what was in the book isn't even enough. Um, So Harvey Keitel shows up as this priest who ends up taking in the kid and giving him to Julian Sands character who takes him home. And in the book, he's just this guy who doesn't want the kid and is bitter and sadistic and beats him mercilessly day in and day out constantly. 
the movie decides, well, let's make him a rapist and uh, implies, thank God all they do is imply that he's raping the boy and that's why he's with him. And so it's interesting that with all the this depraved material the book provides that they're like, well, it'd be easier if we, you know, he never gets raped by a man in the book. So let's throw that in. Yeah, we wouldn't want this movie to be uncomfortable or anything. Right. And uh, at least he's one person who who gets some kind of vengeance against, against him, which is something that also happens in the book where uh, the the kid basically tricks him to take him to show him some valuables that he's found in the forest. And it's actually this pit of teeming with rats. And he manages to like pull the guy into it and then get devoured by the rats, which is one thing we don't get to see in the movie. We just hear his cries. Man, they should have had a bigger budget and we could have seen that. <laughs> exactly. It was interesting the stuff they decided not to show and then the stuff they decide to show in this. Rats eating a body, we can't can't do that. We do get to see the kid buried up to his neck and crows attacking and pecking his head. That's the image everyone sees. I kind of wish that was the whole movie, him like hanging out with that witch lady. Right. I was just really hoping it would just be like him being an apprentice like magician or something. Now, I don't know. Didn't happen. Not to change uh, the subject at all, but I don't know. I think I read somewhere that a lot of the A-listers, like Harvey Keitel, their their uh, lines were dubbed. I don't know if that's correct. Do you guys know anything you know, about that? I wondered that because Harvey Keitel's lines really do look like they're dubbed. Okay, and the accent is too good. Too good. Yeah, like it actually. Like, there's no way he's in the Last Temptation of Christ going, <laughs> "Hey, Jesus." <laughs> Get over here. We got some fish and loaves. He's got his New York and, accent on in the middle of the <laughs> last temptation. And here he's like speaking this inner Slavic language, just like fluently. <laughs> for, for the record, yes, it was dubbed. All of the uh, all of those actors. Yeah. Thank you, Tony. Well, no wonder they all signed up for this. They're like, oh, it's based on a acclaimed novel. And I don't have to memorize any lines. Even I can just show up and film my scene in a day and torture this kid. We get this Stellan Skarsgård who he plays like a Nazi who's basically tasked with uh, just taking the little Jewish boy out to kill him. And the same thing happens in the book where he's, you know, being brought out there. The kid expects to be killed and the guy lets him go. And it stands out in this context because nobody does anything like this in the movie as far as uh, caring, you know, for him until he's eventually ends up with like these Soviet soldiers who save the day. So just the fact that that happens, that there is someone who shows mercy, even though we get no explanation for it, it at least stands out among everything else that we see. And again, even the scene itself, they just they just sit there and they stare profoundly at each other like everyone does in every scene of this movie. And then he lets him go and they don't talk about it. You don't get any sense of what's going on. So it's still... Isn't that illuminating, although it definitely stands in, you know, stark contrast to everything. And it is a little respite of of kindness that happens there that is unexpected. But then again, with the way that this is structured, the very next scene, he's immediately captured by the Nazis again. And that's how he ends up with the Harvey, with Priest Keitel, which makes the whole thing seem like superfluous because, because he just has another vignette waiting for him. And, oh, I need something else to do with him with the Nazis. So he's just caught anyways. But it's just one damn thing after another. I, I do at least want to talk about uh, what Barry Pepper shows up. It's as it's with these like Soviet soldiers, and there's a scene where the, the Cossacks arrive and literally like rape and pillage and burn a village, which 
I I feel like is a something that you could compare with the come and see scene. It doesn't stand out here because every scene is this is like this. Um, is that the same volume? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's much more. Again, in the book, it's a lot more like elaborate and significant. And the, I, <laughs> the stuff is so over the top in the book. You know, they're they're raping infants, and everyone is is they're they're castrating the men and and force feeding it to their family members. I mean, almost juvenile in how it's trying to do this stuff. But they did keep in the movie the like one of the most ridiculous things that happens in that scene, which is like this guy riding around on a horse showing how he can rape a woman while he's on a galloping horse. Oh. And they actually showed that in the movie. <laughs> Which, I don't know, maybe you skinned by that part, Seth, but I was like, are you serious? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll come out and say it. At this point, I had tried three days in a row to not fall asleep or skim and uh, I don't know. I think I saw the end of this movie at some point. <laughs> I just was so bored and so just like, and I, I, I mean, I'm not just making like a lazy gesture either. I, I think that's like a thing about this podcast that I always try and extend to guests too. That like that's the thing about some of these. Some of these are kind of unwatchable. Some of these are just like not worth your time. Like, I don't know. And that's how this one felt a lot. Like, like pretty early on, it like really hammered that into me that just like, it doesn't want me to even watch this or something. I don't know. This felt so dissuaded and I don't know, discouraged from putting any effort into this thing. Yeah. I think you have basically like a million reasons not to waste your time on this particular movie. And then you have one really good versus one really good reason, which is the cinematography. Um, I mean, at least off the top of my head, that's the only thing I can think of where if you want to see something that's crisp, black and white, you, there's a million movies you could probably pick, but this would, this would be one of those that I would throw in there. Um, though I'd probably agree with you. It's probably in unwatchable. I don't know if I read that part of the, <laughs> I don't know if I read that part of the podcast yet. <laughs> Almost. I uh, I did think it was interesting that, and you probably missed this, Seth, since it was happening during all of this stuff here, but once the kid is rescued by the Soviets, the other like main guy he talks to besides Barry Pepper is the actor who played the kid in Come and See. I forgot about that. Which, again, is really inviting a comparison. And I don't know if I would have recognized him, but I knew that he was going to be there. He kind of explains Stalin and the, what the like party means and stuff to him. Fucked up war cinematic universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, obviously he's an adult now in this movie. But when you do something like that, that is such a, a, a way to transparently, you know, say, like, this is a successor to come and see. And this is the same kind of thing that we're going for. Yeah, you wish, bitch. But anyways, there's, yeah, the the whole thing with he with the kid looking up to this the Soviet character in this super long, drawn-out scene where the Soviet character sets out to avenge some of his friends that were killed by villagers and basically is a sniper and shoots them, you know, villagers, and he tells the kid, an eye for an eye, don't forget that. And apparently that's the whole point of the scene. But I, I guess we're supposed to draw on that when this this kid does get rescued and end up in like a school uh, at the end of the movie. And he wears a Soviet uniform and he himself then is like smacked by some merchant and then comes and gets revenge and shoots him. 
which I don't know, seems like not where the movie was heading or almost like, again, they're searching for there to be some kind of an arc for this character. Um, I, if we might as well compare the two leading boys, right? So like where, where Come and See had like the over-the-top facial expressions, the iconic like, you know, colors around, around his eyes. Um, Painted Bird was like the total opposite. You had this kid that was, I mean, he might have had reactions sort of, but it, it mostly feels pretty faceless. One has a name. The other one doesn't have a name. The other one doesn't have a name. Yeah. So like, obviously certain parts of that are done on purpose, but um, there's a clear distinction between how both character arcs are handled. Yeah. This kid gives us nothing. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to harp on some child actor, but I, I think it becomes clear, especially when his father shows up and they have he does get taken back by his father. And there's this scene where they're sitting together at the dinner table and the kid is supposed to be expressing some kind of like, you know, alienation or, or being discontent with the situation. And it really just reveals that this, this kid isn't much of an actor. Like, and it's the rest of the movie. It just wants him to sit there being impassive or grimacing. Maybe when they try to give him any kind of bit of acting to do, it's like, why, why do they even cast this kid? It's just they couldn't get anybody else to be in this movie. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a huge contrast between these two performances. I don't know. I, yeah, I heard about that scene on Wiki towards the end there. I read, I read about it. <laughs> Seth spent three days and didn't even, just didn't even finish it. I have not done that for any of these movies yet. <laughs> It's just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I don't I don't blame you. You are living up to the title of your podcast. In the middle of the movie. He unwatched it in the middle of the movie before even watching it. I attempted. I attempted. So yeah, just, just to round it up here, and then the end is just him riding away on this bus with his father, and he sees the, num- the like you know numbers from the concentration camp on his dad's arm, which I guess is supposed to mean something, and then the, the kid writes what's supposed to be his name on the window next to him which uh you know by that point if that's supposed to have some kind of importance or symbolism i wasn't really engaged to try and figure it out and just for the record this kaczynski did not he stayed with his parents the entire war they did travel around and use some assumed names and stuff that's the whole thing he didn't see shit he was fine Instead of come and see, he just, he didn't come or see, really. He didn't see any of this shit. There was no bird. There was no paint. (laughs) None of this. He has no right to rub my fucking nose in all this shit. Yeah, so two very different discussions here. Um, I I would be happy to unwatch this movie. Seth already did, unless there's anything you want to add to that, Seth. <laughs> this is called uh, this is an episode of not not watched it noables i did it uh, not watch unfinishables didn't watch it doubles sure sure fell asleepables uh, but yeah is that but i don't i don't want to speak for you you know chris maybe you've found some more of a you know redeeming value in in how it was presented than we did i think i i think i generally agree with you guys um it's not that i wouldn't unwatch it for the content I think I would just unwatch it because I felt that it wasn't executed the way that to the best of how it could have been done. What that is, I'm not sure. I just know that there are pretty severe critiques to how it was directed and how it all kind of flows. Right. Um, So I think I would unwatch it in that way, but not because of the content. 
I agree. Actually, I was surprised that it wasn't that hard to watch on that level. I didn't find it all that disturbing. And maybe that's because the way that it was presented was just so bloodless, you know. And, I'm and an you're a naughty boy. boy. But I don't understand all these reports of people like storming out of the press screenings and then writing think pieces about it and, you know, extreme uh, unwatchable art. And I feel like that's just giving this too much credit uh, on all levels. It's not, it does kind of pull its punches. It seems kind of obvious to me in a lot of parts, like how they did stuff and when, you know, what things they weren't showing just off frame, like it's some sort of, some sort of like soft core movie or something. So yeah, I don't think it, it even, it merits the unwatchable, even if you do like the, the movie. I think it's pretty gross. I think it's very gross. Yeah. That was pretty gross and boring and dumb and poopy. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This was a blast and a great discussion. And I think this, these were, these are really good picks. Totally. And, uh, is there anything that you, anything you want to plug or anything? I, I definitely want to tell everyone myself to go check you out on letterbox, siglet underscore M I R. Uh, and see all of the reviews on there. If you use Letterboxd too, you know, you do the collabs and everything. It's very good stuff. I appreciate that. Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, anyone who wants to check out what I write, I always appreciate people who read what I write. And I like to do collaboration with people just like yourselves on uh, movies just to talk about them. I like talking about movies and and that's that's that. Let's do it. Let's collab sometimes, Zig. All right, man. Yeah, always happy to do it. And again, really, thanks you. Thank you very much for the invite. Of course. Yeah. Were you gonna say something, Tony? No, I was just hanging out since we're at the end now. Just joining the. All right. Joining the party. Go back in your little rat hole, Tony. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I need to. I need to change the fade out so that instead of just disappearing when I press the button, I just like dissolve. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Figure that out. Yeah, you could do that in real life too. That. <laughs> I bombed Korea every night. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterbox under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Red flowers bursting down below us Those people didn't even know us We didn't know if we would live or die We didn't know if it was wrong or right I bombed Korea every night so I sit here at this bar I'm not